Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today. Great to have the privilege of coming together and offering up our worship and looking into God's Word being taught by Him. And before I begin, I just want to mention that this afternoon at 4.15, we'll be having our overcoming session. This will be the final one for the spring. We plan to resume these in the fall. And uh, we've had some really good, helpful sessions, and this afternoon is going to be kind of special because we're uh, going to be discussing the theme of toxic relationships, and uh, Dr. Russ Urick from the um, uh, church in Petersburg is going to be here and uh, lead us in that discussion, and I know that it'll be uh, helpful, and so uh, if you have been to some of these sessions or not, you are more than welcome to come and be a part of the one this evening at 4.15. It will last until um, about 5.30, 5.45, and we'll be dismissed in time for our 6 p.m. service. So uh, let me encourage you to come for that if you, uh, if you can at all. But this morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 5. It occurs to me that probably even Stephen King could not come up with a creepier scene <laughs> than the one we read about in Daniel chapter 5. Here is uh, King Belshazzar having a banquet, a drunken party, and uh, all of a sudden the fingers of a hand appear out of nowhere and write something on the wall that he can't read uh, or understand, and then the hand disappears. He didn't understand it, but he soon would. We need to get a little bit of background on this, this scene. Uh, it was an evening in mid-October in the year 539 B.C. that Belshazzar decided he was going to throw this party. And what a party it was. He invited a thousand of his closest friends, uh, and they drank. That's mostly what this party was about. It was about, about drinking, kind of like some parties today. Now, Belshazzar is referred to several times in this chapter as the king. But we need to understand he was not actually the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon was his father, Nabonidus. But Nabonidus, for about 10 years, for some reason, did not want to be in Babylon. He wanted to be in Arabia. And so while he was away, his son, Belshazzar, was the uh, acting king. So he is the king in place of uh, his father, uh, in, uh, in, so king in that sense. And on what turns out to be the very last night, of the Babylonian Empire and the last night of Belshazzar's life, he decides to throw this drunken party. Thousand of his nobles, and notice it says he drank wine in front of them. Kings did not drink with people. They were always separate, you know, at the head table, I guess. And uh, so he's drinking wine in front of them, and they're all drinking. And then uh, there are also his wives and his concubines there. We don't know how many of them there were. So this is quite a crowd. And they're all drinking freely. Now what Daniel 5 does not tell us, but other historical sources do, is that at the very moment this party was taking place, the armies of the Medes and the Persians were just outside the city walls of Babylon. And so while all this is going on inside, there is this invading army that is surrounding the city. So why did Belshazzar decide to throw a party? It could be a couple of reasons. I think one of them might be that he was showing defiance of these invaders. You may have gotten this far, but you can't get me. You can't get any further. After all, he's sitting there in a palace behind walls that were legendary. These walls were reputed to have been 80 feet thick, 
300 feet high and penetrating 35 feet below ground. The idea was you can't get through them, you can't get over them, you can't get around them. And they were supposed to be 60 miles in circumference. So he's feeling pretty cocky about that uh, and is just sort of doing this out of defiance. There's another possibility. The other possibility may be that he never thought the Medes and Persians could get this far. And that as they are having this party, he is scared to death and he's trying to drown his fears with alcohol. But either way, the party got rolling and Belshazzar had a not so bright idea. He decided to send for the sacred vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we read about those back in Daniel chapter 1. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem in 587 B.C.? He had gone in and pillaged the temple in Jerusalem and brought all those sacred vessels and brought them back to Babylon and put them in the temple of his god, Baal. So these were kind of trophies of his conquest. And they had been there all these years, and now Belshazzar decides he wants to drink from them. The book of Ezra, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, tells us that, tells us that there were 5,400 of these vessels. They were mostly gold and silver cups and goblets and other uh, articles from the temple. But they were all sacred. They were all made to be used in the service of God and God alone and for no other purpose. They were never meant to be used in some kind of drunken brawl such as Belshazzar was putting on. But Belshazzar wanted to drink from them. I suppose another act of defiance, another act of his pride, another act of arrogance. And as he did so, not only did he drink from those sacred vessels, but he and those with him praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone and wood. Any god they could think of except the real God. Any God they could imagine except the God to whose service these vessels were dedicated. And so they were committing an act of enormous blasphemy. It would be hard to think of something more blasphemous than that. They were praising these non-gods with the vessels that were created for the worship of the one true God. Most ancient kings wouldn't have done that. They would have been too superstitious. They would have thought there might be something to this. And they would have been afraid to do that, but not Belshazzar. And that's when the hand appeared and wrote four words. Just the four words. Now, Belshazzar didn't have a clue what the writing said, but it scared him almost to death. The Bible talks about the color draining from his face, and he trembles. He's terrified. If he was being cocky beforehand, he's not now. If he was frightened beforehand, he is doubly so now. He doesn't know what this is about. So he did what any good pagan would do. He called in every religious quack he could find. He called in the astrologers and he called in the charlatans and he called in the Chaldeans and he called in the enchanters and asked them you know, to interpret the uh, writing on the wall for them and offer them rich rewards. Anybody that can do this, he says, I'll put a gold chain around his neck, big purple robe on him, and he'll become number three in the kingdom. You see, Belshazzar himself was number two because Nabonidus was number one. So I'll make you number three in the kingdom if you'll just interpret this writing for me. But they didn't have a clue either. So Belshazzar became even more afraid. And at that point enters the queen. Now, just as Belshazzar is not actually the king, 
This woman is not actually the queen. She is more likely the queen mother, his mother, or perhaps even his grandmother. And the reason we say that is because we've already been told that his wives and concubines were already at the party. She wasn't. And also she knows some things that Belshazzar doesn't know. She knows some history that he is not aware of. Most of all, she knows about Daniel. And she begins to tell Belshazzar about Daniel in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, his father. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was not actually his literal father. He was his predecessor, but they spoke in terms of fatherhood. And so uh, he says, in the days of your father, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, there was this man, Daniel, who had this excellent spirit within him. And he was renowned for his wisdom and for his insight and for the, the ability to interpret dreams and all kinds of, th of, of things. And even though Daniel had had a prominent role in Nebuchadnezzar's court, he had none in the court of Belshazzar. Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. The queen mother has to come in and tell him about Daniel. Daniel by now is probably about 80 years old because remember he was taken captive uh, many, many years before this. And so now he's about 80 years old. Belshazzar doesn't know who he is, but the queen mother does. And she tells uh, Belshazzar, let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. He can do this. You just need to get the right man in here. And so Belshazzar sends for Daniel. And Daniel comes in. And the first thing you notice about Daniel when he speaks to the king, the king says, Daniel, if you can do this, I'll make you the same offer that I made to all the quacks. I'll put a, a purple robe on you and a gold chain around your neck. and You'll be number three in the kingdom. Can you imagine? This is an exile. This is a slave. This is someone who was taken captive and now an old man. And he says, I'm going to give you all of those honors. But those weren't nearly as great as the honors that he'd had under Nebuchadnezzar. But the first thing you notice about Daniel's response is he doesn't show nearly the respect for Belshazzar that he had for Nebuchadnezzar. When Belshazzar tells him all this, he says, let your gifts be for yourself or give them to somebody else. In other words, keep it. I don't want it. But he said, I will interpret the dream for you. Uh, and you wonder, why was he not more respectful toward Belshazzar? Well, it may have been that as an Israelite, he was just offended by Belshazzar's blasphemous acts. Or maybe he knew enough about Belshazzar to know that he wasn't teachable the way Nebuchadnezzar had been. I remember my, my teacher and good friend at Abilene Christian University, Neil Lightfoot, made a comment one time about a student of his, he said, he's a really smart guy, but you can't teach him anything. And that was about the worst thing you could say that he could say about somebody. You can't teach him anything. And that may be the way that Daniel regarded Belshazzar. You can't teach him anything. Nebuchadnezzar you could get through to, but not this guy. And so he tells him, just, you just keep your gifts. Let them be for yourself, but I'll read the inscription for you. But before he does, he reminds Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar's greatness, how God gave him that greatness, how he gave him glory and majesty and honor and power and all of those other things. But how when Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant before God, that he gave him the mind of a beast and that he caused him to come wet with the dew of heaven, as we talked about last week until he would understand that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he will. 
That statement has been made over and over and over in the book of Daniel, hasn't it? The Most High God rules the kingdom of men and will give it to whomever he will. If there's one thing we ought to get from this book, it is that statement that God is in charge. God rules. And he will raise up those that he wants to rule and he will take down those he no longer wants to rule. And so he reminds Belshazzar that God had brought Nebuchadnezzar down when he became arrogant in his heart. And, but then he says, but you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You didn't do like Nebuchadnezzar did. You didn't humble yourself. He said, you have lifted yourself up against God. So how do you expect God to now be on your side? And he points out that Belshazzar had honored all of the no-gods, the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone and wood. But he said, the God in whose hand is your breath, you have not honored. What a powerful description of God. And what Daniel says to Belshazzar is true of all of us. He holds in his hand our very breath. We do not live one second but by his permission. And he said that God who holds your breath in his hands and in, in whose hands are all your ways, you have not honored. And then he begins to interpret the writing. Now this handwriting on the wall is not really a message. There are no sentences here. There are just three Aramaic words, one of them repeated twice. Mene, mene, tekel, and farsen. What in the world does that mean? It's kind of a parable more than a message because there's no statement being made there. Daniel has to give the meaning to each of these. And each of those words is an expression of numbers or of measures in the Aramaic language. The word mene sounds like the Aramaic word for numbered. And he says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And then he says it again. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. Sounds like the Aramaic word for weighed. And you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You know, in some sense, we are all weighed in the balances by God, aren't we? And the last thing on earth we ever want to hear is that we've been found wanting. But that's what Daniel tells Belshazzar. You've been weighing the balances. You didn't cut it. You've been found wanting. And then he says the other word is parson. Parson, uh, the singular of that word, Paris, sounds like the Aramaic word for divided. It's very similar in sound to the word for Persia. And Daniel said, here's what that means. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. In other words, the four words on the wall say this to Belshazzar, you've had it. You've had it. And your kingdom has had it because you have lifted yourself up against God. And then the last two verses of the chapter, that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. And we hear that echo again. The most high God rules the affairs of men 
and he gives the kingdom to whom he will. What happens to Belshazzar kind of reminds us of Jesus' parable of the rich fool, doesn't it? Remember that man who had so much that he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And that very night, God said, you fool. This night is your soul required of you. Belshazzar was a fool in the truest sense of the word. And that very night, his soul was required of him. Well, that story is not in the Bible just to give us a creepy story about a stupid king. Why is it there? What are we supposed to learn from it? Let me just point out two things to you. One is we're to, to learn to beware of misusing what belongs to God. That's what Belshazzar did. He took those sacred vessels that belonged to God. They were made for his use only, and he put them to profane use. He took that which was sacred and made something profane out of it, and God doesn't let that pass. He didn't let it pass with this king, and he won't let it pass with you, and he won't let it pass with me. Let me give you some examples. What does the third commandment say? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know what in vain means? In vain doesn't necessarily mean profanity in the sense that we usually use that word. It just means profane, vain in the sense of empty, meaningless. Just kind of tossing off God's name as though it meant nothing. It's the kind of stuff that you hear all the time. Everywhere you go, you hear people using God's name that way. It was not always that way. There was a time when people respected the name of God, believe it or not. Some of you never have lived in an era like that, but some of us have. People respected the name of God. But what happened? People began to disregard the name of God and to use it as though it meant nothing. And now what has happened? It means nothing to most people. And they use his name in an empty way. And I keep hearing people in the church do it, and it just gives me the creeps. Do you not know what you're doing when you use God's name in an empty way before you ever say the name of God? Stop and think. Am I giving reverence to God? Or am I saying something that I don't want to come up against in judgment? Because I want to remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 in verse 26. He said, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Taking what belongs to God, his sacred name and putting it to profane use. is something God will not tolerate. Same thing is true of God's church. It belongs to him. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And we automatically start thinking about 1 Corinthians 6, about our bodies. We'll get to that in a minute. But Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about the church because the you here is plural. You, he says, are the temple of God. God's Spirit dwells in you. God's Spirit dwells in us collectively. And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. You collectively, the church, are that temple. 
And so we can't do anything that would destroy that temple. How do we destroy the church? How are the Corinthians doing it? Through factions and division and disunity. And through pulling it apart instead of bringing it together. That is a destruction of God's holy temple and God will not tolerate it. Before you do or say anything that might contribute to the destruction of the body of Christ, remember Belshazzar. And then there are our own bodies individually. Your body individually is the temple of God's spirit. Last Thursday, we were having a Bible study with, uh, by Zoom with uh, some of the Christians in Ukraine. And we were talking about the marvelous fact that the, the same spirit of God that was involved in the creation of the universe now lives in us. The Bible says that. What an amazing thought that is. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body, this time singular, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What's Paul talking about? In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, he's, not talk, he's talking about not using your body for sexual immorality. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. That body is not yours to use any way you choose. It is yours to use the way God chooses. And any other use of it is taking that which belongs to God and using it in a profane way. Your body is a sacred temple, the dwelling place of his spirit, his Holy Spirit. It's not yours to use the way you see fit. But it's ours to use only the way he sees fit. So the story about Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall certainly teaches us that we need to learn not to misuse what belongs to God. It also teaches us, though, to remember the short-sightedness of sin. The short-sightedness of sin. Belshazzar sat in his banquet hall, drinking it up and praising all the wrong gods, and apparently thinking he could get away with anything he wanted to do. He saw no consequences for it. He saw no judgment coming for it. He saw no punishment happening for it. He never stopped to think about the consequences. And then the end of the chapter says that very night he found out. That very night, Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. In one night. Before he even went to bed, probably. The Medes and the Persians managed to breach those walls and they killed him and they took his kingdom. We need to learn not to be short-sighted when it comes to sin. Sin always has consequences. It always has and it always will. That's what Adam and Eve learned the hard way. That's what millions of people have learned the hard way ever since. That's what all of us keep learning the hard way. Sin has consequences. Read your Bible and see how nation after nation defied God and thought they could get away with it and got left in the dust of history. And the same thing is true of individuals. We never get away with defying God. Never. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It is an inviolable law of God's kingdom. Whatever we plant is what we're going to harvest. And then the question becomes, what are you planting? Because that's what you're going to harvest. But here's the great thing about all this. The great thing is we get to choose. We are not locked in to a life of defiance against God. We're not locked in to foolish indifference as though death and eternity were not certain. We can make a decision about that. We can affect the outcome of that by the decision we make. And the reason we can is because Jesus came and gave his life for us and gave us that option to just continue the long march toward death and destruction or to turn to him in faith and to humble ourselves before God and to have eternal life. But with that choice comes responsibility. It's up to you to decide. Nobody else can make that decision for you. But God will hold you accountable for what you decide. So don't be a Belshazzar. Decide for Jesus and for righteousness. Decide for the God in whose hand is your very breath. And give your life to him today and follow him always. Let's stand together and sing.